Merry Christmas from Politics Weekly. This week on Politics Weekly, we talk to Jeremiah Patterson from the Jeremiah Patterson Show podcast about the news of the week, including the impeachment inquiry and Kamala Harris dropping out. But first... And if the Democrats don't start saying it, then why would those people feel that they're there for us? Our exclusive interview with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and best-selling author Marianne Williamson this week on Politics Weekly. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. Uh, I am here with a very special uh, guest today. Uh, she is a Democratic candidate for President of the United States, uh, Ms. Marianne Williamson. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so the first question, I, I guess, is a question that has been asked to every political candidate. Um, it, it started with Ted Kennedy in 1980. That was the most infamous example. Uh, but I want to ask you this question, which is, why do you want to be president? I want to help the United States to look in the mirror. We need to take a brutally honest look at ourselves and recognize the places where we're not who we say that we are. We're not functioning even as a vital democracy. We're not standing on the principles on which we purport to stand. Because when we do that, we recognize the deeper level of our problems, the root causes, and not just the symptoms. The political establishment addresses symptoms, but not root cause. And one of the reasons why the political establishment does not answer, uh, speak to root cause is because if they did that, we would all see that they are the root cause. So we need a people's movement, and we need a people's candidate, we need a people's president, somebody who is willing to say that which we all already know that we have a corporate aristocracy that for all has and for all intents and purposes has corrupted our government has hijacked our value system so that at this point we're not a government of the people by the people and for the people we are a government that does more to advocate for short-term profit maximization for huge corporate entities such as health insurance companies and big pharmaceutical companies and agribusiness and food companies and gun manufacturers and chemical companies and oil and gas and defense contractors. They come first. Their economic bottom line for their stockholder class comes first. And what this has done is to create a tremendous amount of wealth inequality and a tremendous amount of injustice on all kinds of levels because not only their short-term profit maximization, but whatever would allow them to function um, so beyond the corporate subsidies and beyond the tax changes, it also has to do with hijacking things such as the FAA, the FDA, the CDC, all kinds of agencies that, or, or EPA, all kinds of agencies that were established to protect the people do more now to protect the short-term profits of the very people whose overreach we were to be protected from. I'm running because we really need a president who will say that. We need a president who lays it down the way it really is. If we don't have a candidate who lays it down on that level of radical truth-telling, I don't know how we're going to override the radical lies that will be coming to us next year. But even beyond that, if all we do is defeat this president. See, this president, in my opinion, he did not create all the problems that I just mentioned. All these problems created him. He did not create all these problems. He's a symptom of them, and he exploits them. 
But if all we do is, is defeat him electorally next year, then all of the political forces represented by what I just said will be back full bore. In the midterms in 22, they'll be back full bore in the um, uh, presidential election in 2024. So we have to do a much deeper level of transformation than just tweaking things here and tweaking things there. Um, I want to ask you about your opinion on mandatory vaccinations. Um, Recently, uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, uh, signed a bill uh, limiting vaccination uh, exemptions. Would a President Williamson use the power of the federal government to challenge that law? Well, the federal government—that's not where the federal government sits. This has to do more with a uh, with state decisions. So uh, I, I don't know if I go as far as you, what you just said, but I will tell you what I would do, and that is that I would establish an independent commission. Um, right now, there is something connected to the CDC, but I would like to see something—an uh, independent commission of scientists who have not been and never are not and never have been paid in any way by big pharma, and are not connected to the current establishment of the CDC. Um, we need to have an independent commission to review and to reform uh, vaccine safety. Um, now, uh, you've uh, proposed uh, establishing a Department of Peace. Uh, are there any names specifically that you would uh, that you have in mind that you would consider as potential names to head uh, that department or that proposed department? Well, we already have uh, within the State Department. There is a budget of a little bit less than a billion dollars already uh, that goes towards our peace-building agencies. And I, one of the reasons I want a Department of Peace is to familiarize myself and to be able to coordinate all of the peace-building efforts that are already at work uh, with, the, uh, w- with the State Department as it now exists. That also includes the $17 billion uh, budget for the um, USAID, which is Long-Term Development and Humanitarian Assistance. So for that reason, I don't think I'm at a point where I want to throw out any names. Um, Certainly, someone like Dennis Kucinich uh, had the idea of the peace, uh, Department of Peace on the table for a long time. But in terms of who should head an effort, uh, something like this, uh, that's not something where I feel confident in any of the names that I would throw out at this point. Uh, all right. Now, um, in 2016, you endorsed Bernie Sanders' campaign for president. Uh, Bernie Sanders is running once again in 2020. Why are you running in the same year he is? I love uh, Bernie Sanders. I think he's fabulous. There are a couple of other candidates that I just think are fabulous as well. Uh, Bernie Sanders is running because his heart tells him to run. And I've been running because my heart tells me to run. Um, I agree with uh, Bernie on many, many things, and uh, I think he's fabulous. I'm also talking about the Department of Children and Youth. I have an entire concentration on uh, the vulnerabilities and the challenges of uh, America's children. Um, That is not part of the Sanders campaign. My Department of Peace is not part of the Sanders campaign. My whole health plan, which has a an integrative approach to health, where uh, the uh, patients are given far more information and access, uh, and incentivizing of actual health uh, well health creation, not just treatment of sickness, including the fact that uh, our, uh, our insurance companies and and the Medicare would be covering the cost of the non-allopathic treatments as well as allopathic. So I'm talking about things. He's talking about the things in his campaign he feels he should talk about. And I'm talking about things in my campaign that I feel I should talk about. 
Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the debates. Um, you were you made the first two rounds of debates. Uh, you didn't make the last couple. Um, there's a debate coming up in December. Uh, is there any? Do you think that there's any path forward for your campaign if you don't make this debate? Well, I I, I think the question is what happened here. The debates are a TV reality show. That's all they are. Uh, the problem in America is that we're being run and basically for all intents and purposes governed by a corporate aristocracy. The DNC is just a corporate aristocracy within the larger corporate aristocracy. Their function should be to facilitate democracy, not to dictate it. The voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and uh, Nevada did not need the DNC, a private corporation, to come in here and narrow their choices. They're more than capable of doing that themselves. And so this, what this is is a rebranding of the old-fashioned party bosses who sat in that room and decided who the candidates would be. Now, they did this last time. They put their finger on the, on the scale, and we all know that. And if they had not put their finger on the scale, it would have been either Hillary or Bernie. But I think we all would have felt good about it, because we would have known that the people chose, and there wouldn't have been a lot of resentment and cynicism, and I don't think Trump would be president today. Well, they're doing the same thing this time. This is all just a show. This is a reality TV show. A lot of people are making money. It's, it's the campaign industrial complex. So the point isn't, you know, after my success, and it was success after the second uh, debate, the most Google candidate and so forth, somebody clearly put out the kill order, get rid of her, she can't be on the third debate. And thus the false narrative, I'm a woo-woo lady, I'm a crystal lady, I'm anti-medicine, I'm anti-science, all of that. This is much bigger than me. I'm not a victim. This isn't about me. This is about our democracy here. And it is, um, it is uh, very, very unfortunate that the people of uh, the early primary states were simply not given access. You know, the American people own the airwaves. That's what this should be. It should be mandated time, equal for every candidate. It shouldn't matter whether you're one of the good old boys from the DNC world, and it shouldn't matter if you're the billionaire like Michael Bloomberg who can come in and spend $40 million in the first week. It's these, the, the power to manipulate here as opposed to just giving it. And, the, and I'll tell you something. What I know from having been in this, this experience now for a long time, and, and this, what I'm about to say, is very aligned with what I've experienced in a 35-year career. People are very smart. That's what the political establishment does not understand about the American electorate. People are smart. They're more than capable of thinking for themselves. They don't need a DNC to come and, and create these narratives for them. Uh, none of this was necessary. And someday the people are going to rise up and, and demand their democracy back. Um, there is this, uh, there's a article from the Washington Post this morning about uh, something about Trump pardoning Charles Manson. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's so silly. I said, I look, I looked, I, I tweeted, I said, it's very sinister because somebody had told me, and I looked at an article that um, that Trump had posthumously pardoned uh, Manson, which in my mind was so hideous and outrageous, but to be honest, we're still within the purview of the kinds of hideous and outrageous things he's done. So I tweeted it, and then I deleted the tweet. And then I said, I'm sorry, I tweeted that. And, of course, that's what makes national news. That's where we are in America today. 
Uh, I want to go back to policy. Um, one of the uh, biggest recipients of foreign aid uh, in America is Israel. In 2018, Congress passed a $38 billion defense package to, uh, to Israel. Would a President Williamson continue this trend of giving foreign aid to Israel? I don't think the problem is the foreign aid to Israel. The problem is Netanyahu's policies in Israel. Um, it's very disturbing that um, the United States recently, that Mike Pompeo, uh, basically said that we would no longer join with the international community in acknowledging the illegitimacy and the illegality uh, illegality of the settlement. Uh, I do think that the Golan Heights, although uh, an occupation is understandable, given that there's no democratic, uh, uh, there's, there's no government in Syria to negotiate with, I think what we need to remember and to recognize as a matter of of, of international law, and this is extremely important because uh, Trump is Trump is is right there winking all the time to Netanyahu. The fact that you are occupying territory does not mean that you have the right to annex it. And also, according to international law, if you are occupying a territory, then the economic benefits of that of that territory should go to its inhabitants. So my feelings about Israel, I do not. Uh, I do not support the occupation. I also do not support the blockade of Gaza. It is immoral and it's not working. Um, and uh, I have been to Israel enough and I have enough understanding and knowledge of, of that to know that the ultimate answer is not going to be on the level of the checkpoints, on the level of the Green Line, or even on the level of the military. It's going to be on the level of the heart. It's going to be on the level of the fact of the, of the psychological and emotional dynamics inherent in the fact that two peoples with conflicting um, historical uh, dramas are going to have to share the same piece of land. And one of the things that both the Palestinians and the Israelis are very clear about, although too many people in our country do not seem to be so clear about sometimes, is that neither one is leaving. And so in a Williamson administration, we would have an equally robust support of both the legitimate security needs of the Israelis as well as the human rights and the economic hopes and opportunities of the Palestinian people. Um, now, I understand uh, that you're in it to win it, but say you don't win the nomination. Do you pledge to support the Democratic nominee for president regardless of who he or she may be? Oh, absolutely. We have a, we have a um, chilling and I, I do not use that word lightly, we have a chilling prospect ahead of us uh, were President Trump to win a second term. Um, it is vitally important, not just uh, for our generation, really the history of the United States. It is imperative that the Democrat win in 2020. Um, now, this is completely a hypothetical here, but let's say the nominee is Biden or Sanders or Warren or Buttigieg, and let's say they... Uh, call you up and they say, Marianne, I want you to be my running mate. What would Marianne Williamson's response be? I would do whatever I can at this point in our history, just like everybody I know would, to serve my country in whatever way um, I'm called, because I am aware, as millions of us are, this is as critical a moment in history as we have ever had. Um, now, um, Recently, uh, Elizabeth Warren said that her goal was to become the last 
uh, president elected via the electoral college, um, or she wanted to be elected towards uh, uh, through the electoral college in 2020, and then she wanted to uh, find a way to abolish it. Um, do you share those goals? And if so, uh, do you have uh, a plan to uh, abolish the electoral college? I agree with her. I, I totally agree with her. And the only way to abolish it, of course, would be through a constitutional amendment. And I would absolutely support that. Um, now, you've, you've had a lot of ideas like the Green New Deal and Medicare for All and reparations. If you win the presidency, uh, but Republicans uh, keep control of the Senate in the same year, um, do you have a strategy uh, to try and get those pieces uh, of legislation through? Well, I, I, you know, if the consciousness of the country is such that they elected me president, I think it's reasonable to think that the consciousness of the country is such that they did not elect uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, there, there's no way for us to know who's going to be in charge of the Senate when the next president uh, comes into power. Now, if it's a Democratic uh, president, which we hope it will be, and if it's a Republican-led Senate, which we hope it will not be, then that Democratic president is going to have a problem on um, I would I would put myself in a place to say I would not seek to overreach. I would not seek to abuse the powers of the presidency, such as uh, Mr. Trump has done, but neither would I be as timid with the powers of the presidency as uh, President Obama was. Um, I would not be putting my hands out to uh, with an olive branch to Mitch McConnell when Mitch McConnell has already made it more than clear that he would bite my hand off at the at any possible opportunity. Uh, I'd be a tough president, but I would certainly be working within the law. Um, now, uh, if you do end up being uh, the nominee uh, for president of the United States, uh, are there are, are there any names you would be interested in? Uh, or any people you'd be interested in uh, looking at for your running mate? Oh, for my running mate? I thought you were going to say to have certain agencies. Um, <clears throat> uh, for my running mate, I think that if I were to be the nominee, it would be reasonable for the uh, running mate to be a U.S. senator, possibly a U.S. congressman. Because I do not have the Washington experience, I think my running mate should be someone who has. Um, now, um, turning to uh, the debate stage, uh, many people have uh, criticized one of the candidates, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, for her stance uh, on the war in, St in Syria. You've taken a very uh, non-interventionist stance on, uh, uh, on many issues. Would a President Williamson find a way to get, out of, to get America out of Syria? When, when the President removed the troops that he removed from Syria... This was a terrible abandonment of the Kurds. There's nothing to be proud of the way we left the, you know, the, the soldiers that we left in, in Syria. How you get out of a situation is as important as whether or not and how you get in. And you must live according to principle. Our abandonment of the Kurds in that situation is nothing for the United States to be proud of. I feel the same way about leaving Afghanistan. You can't, you know, bring them home is not a foreign policy. It's a bumper sticker. Bring the boys home. It's like a slogan. It is not a, 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 a foreign policy. So I would be extremely careful about how we leave Syria. And listen, we created this mess. 
ISIS is something we created. Let's make no mistake about it. If we had not invaded Iraq, this would not be happening. But we don't get to just throw our hands up in the air and say, okay, this isn't fun anymore, we're leaving. We, we, uh, we did a lot to create this mess, and we have to be very, very careful how we uh, exit the problem now that it exists. Um, and then one last question I want to ask you. Um, obviously, Andrew Yang, one of his key proposals uh, is universal basic income. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think that I, that's a logical plan, in your opinion? Yes, I do. I agree with him. I read his book. Um, I understand. I, I have, I'm on a complete agreement that we have an economic tsunami on the way towards us. And some people are already feeling it. You know, we have nine states in the United States. Uh, uh, in which uh, trucking is the uh, primary industry. Well, if you've been a trucker for 30, 40 years, uh, and all of a sudden it's just driverless trucks, what is that trucker supposed to do? And this is compounded in the lives of millions and millions of people. So um, absolutely, I think the UBI is a good idea. It, it's interesting to know that um, um, and Milton Friedman, who was the main articulator of trickle-down economics back in the 80s and uh, the 70s, even he himself said there should be a universal basic income. This is an old idea, uh, and, I, and I, I agree with Andrew. I think it's an idea whose time has come. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me today, Marianne Williamson. Do you want to tell people before uh, we sign off where uh, you can donate to, where they can donate to your campaign? They can go to Marianne2020.com. All right. Thank you. Thank you. If you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. She is the spiritual guru for Oprah Winfrey. She made headlines for her independent run for Congress in 2014. She has written multiple books about spiritualism. Who is Marianne Williamson, the acclaimed author seeking the White House? the candidates keep america great their story yeah you're always when you're young you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future but i'm interested in what you can bring to the present and their fight for the white house i have the most progressive record of anybody running if you look at joe's record and you look at my record i don't think there's much question about who's more progressive presidential profiles 2020 how we could actually make this government work not just for a thin slice at the top but make it work for everyone else i think that sure if people want to speculate speculate about running mates i encourage that because i think that joe biden would be a great running mate as vice president Marianne Deborah Williamson was born on July 8, 1952 in Houston, Texas to Samuel and Sophie, the youngest of three children. Williamson is of Russian descent. Williamson, who was raised in a conservative Jewish family, Williamson became inspired to become an activist during the Vietnam War when she participated in protests. After graduating from high school, Williamson started to take an interest in mystics and spent her 20s unsure what to do with her life. She dropped out of college in 1973. She moved to New York to peruse a career in singing. However, she developed an addiction to drugs. She would later suffer from depression, 
Williamson has credited the book A Course in Miracles for turning her life around. Though she became fascinated in Christianity, Williamson has said the book did not convert her to the church. She returned to college and ran a bookstore on campus. She bought a $1,000 apartment and was roommates with future actress Laura Dern, who was 17 at the time who states that Williamson who hold prayer groups in their living room. Williamson got a job at the Philosophical Research Society and started a lecture series about A Course in Miracles. At first, few attended her lectures, but as word spread, Williamson saw a spike in attendance, prompting her to rent more church space. Williamson took off, and in 1993, she published her first book, A Return to Love. Reflections on the principles of A Course in Miracles became a New York Times bestseller for nearly 40 weeks and caught the attention of Oprah Winfrey. Williamson would later become Winfrey's spiritual guru. No, you are the best prayer I have ever known. Thank you. Thank you. In 1993, Williamson published A Woman's Word. The book became also became a New York Times bestseller. She also published Illuminata that same year. The book became a USA Today bestseller. Williamson founded Project Angel Food to help people with AIDS and HIV. The project proved to be a success, raising $1.5 million. She resigned controversially in 1992 with rumors that gay activist Steve Schultz forced her out. She had a secret marriage with an unknown husband for a number years before getting a divorce. She had one child during that time. In 1998, she started the Peace Alliance to promote prayer for liberal intentions. Williamson has proposed forming a U.S. Department of Peace. In 2007, she published The Age of Miracles, Embracing the New Midlife. The book became a USA Today bestseller. In 2014, she officially dipped her toe in politics. Hi, I'm Mary Ham Williamson, and I'm running for Congress. I'm running for the U.S. House of Representatives, California District 33. Running for California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, Williamson ran for the seat being vacated by Democrat Henry Waxman, who had served for 40 years. Running as an independent, Williamson gained endorsements from prominent Democratic politicians like former Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich, former Florida Congressman Alan Grayson, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm and former Independent Governor of Minnesota Jesse Ventura. She raised over $2 million but only received 13% of the vote, barring her from the ballot. In fall of 2018 however, she announced her candidacy for president in 2020. make New Zealand the place where it's the best place in the world for a child to grow up. And I will tell her girlfriend you are so on, because the United States of America is going Thanks. to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up. Williamson has received polarized reactions for her stances on vaccinations, antidepressants and reparations for black people. She gained traction after her debate performances. She now hopes to be America's first woman president. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is the last episode of 2019. Um, 
this will be coming out on the last day of 2019, which will also be the last day of the decade. Uh, and joining me again, she was a previous ge uh, guest, is Quinaya Fulton. Uh, thank you for joining me again. Oh, I apologize. Sorry. That's okay. Um, but anyways, so do you want to tell people a little bit about uh, what you do on your podcast uh, for people that are unfamiliar? Yes. Yeah, so the last time I was on your podcast, um, my podcast name was actually Still Ungrateful. I recently changed it to You, Me, and Polly. Um, I focus on all things political, mostly uh, American politics, but sometimes I dive into some geopolitical matters. Um you know, for instance, like Brexit in the UK, but I mostly stick to give a commentary from a left point of view because I am a staunch liberal, um, but I mostly stick to American politics. And I also do some freelance writing on the side as well. All right. Uh, well, let's get into it. Uh, we, uh, we haven't, we didn't have, uh, an episode last week, so we'll be talking about the news from this week, uh, and from last week. Uh, starting with uh, the big elephant in the room, uh, Donald Trump impeached. Uh, Donald Trump became uh, the first uh, or the third president uh, in history uh, to be impeached uh, by the House of Representatives. Uh, no Republican voted in favor uh, of uh, the uh, uh, of impeachment. Every single, uh, all Democrats except for uh, two voted for the first article of impeachment. Uh, although it should be noted that Justin Amash, uh, who was a Republican but switched to being independent, uh, did vote in favor of the articles of uh, both articles of impeachment. Uh, two Democrats uh, voted against the first article of impeachment. Uh, there was Jeff Van Drew, uh, representative from New Jersey, who voted against it, uh, as did Colin Peterson, uh, representative uh, from Minnesota. Um, uh, and, uh, for the second article of impeachment, there was a third Democrat who voted against the second article of impeachment, that Democrat being, uh, Representative Jared Golden from Maine. Um, uh, also, uh, there was one Democrat that voted present, uh, and that was Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. Um, uh, however, uh, the, uh, articles of impeachment may not be going to the Senate yet, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that she uh, is waiting to send them to the Senate to make sure that there will be a fair trial in the Senate. Um, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, criticizing Pelosi, uh, saying that he, uh, accusing her of not uh, having uh, enough evidence uh, or accusing it of not being a fair trial in the House and saying that uh, the uh, he believes she was acting like the case was closed in the house and that it's not right now. Um, but that, that's mainly that, uh, since then, uh, Jeff Andrew, one of the Democrats that voted in favor of impeachment has switched parties, uh, and has become a Republican. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, on Donald Trump being impeached and the whole drama behind, uh, that and the articles of impeachment potentially being withheld from the Senate for a time? not surprised we have gotten to this point with the um, Donald Trump presidency that we have reached impeachment because there have been so many incidents of Trump basically violating the Constitution, for instance, the Immaculate Clause. It, I always tell people, go back and read the Mueller report. It is very damaging in how he was working with Russia to try to influence our elections. So it's not surprising that once we learned about this um, call with the Ukraine 
president Zelensky that Trump was trying to solicit um, the president of Ukraine to dig dirt up on Hillary Clinton to get the email servers and then digging dirt on Joe Biden to learn about um, Biden's son's you know, association with the bank over there. He was on the board getting about $500,000 a month in payment, which, by the way, I think is something we should actually look into. I'm anti-nepotism <laughs> on all sides, but I'm not surprised we have reached this point. I know Nancy Pelosi, for the longest time, she's the Speaker of the House, was hesitant to do impeachment as we're going through an election cycle right now. But at some point, you do have to put power in check. And, like, you, you just can't keep going around doing whatever you want and violating, violating our Constitution. So I feel like Trump basically bought this on himself <laughs> by trying to solicit, basically, bribery from another country to interfere in our election to dig dirt up on Joe Biden. Trump was, didn't, was not concerned about corruption, so allegedly against the Biden family. He only started talking about Joe Biden and obsessing about him is because he's now a running mate and Joe Biden continues to beat him and, you know, in polling for the upcoming presidency. So I'm glad we have reached this point because I'm really big on we have to let the powers that be know that you just can't go around violating rules and norms and thinking that just because you're the president, you can do whatever you want. And Trump has said these on occasion where he says, I'm the president. I'm above the law. You can't press charges against me. He was even on TV saying China should look into Joe Biden, which is like, again, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you can't ask other countries to interfere on in our elections and for them to do investigations on your behalf to benefit you personally. So I'm glad we reached this point. Um, I'm not shocked that there were a couple of Democrats that voted against the impeachment for, I believe, their own personal reasons. I don't think they did it representing their, their state and their district. On the matter of Tulsi Gabbard, she's a politician that really frustrates me because there's a part of me that likes her. I like some of her progressive agenda, but at the same time, I am suspect about her allegiance with the Trump administration and a couple of Trump supporters like David Duke, for instance, and Steve Bannon. I know she kind of has a bit of a friendship with them, um, and although she has denounced David Duke, I will say admit that. But I feel like she should have took a position one way or the other instead of just voting present. I don't see I don't see her need for voting pre present. I think the evidence is pretty clear for you to vote one way or the other. And her whole excuse of that he was just trying to be, um, it was a protest vote, and that she feels like we're too partisan in this country, and then impeachment would tear our country apart. First of all, our country is already torn apart. It's already divided. So I don't think this impeachment is going to further divide us because we are already there. So, but I'm not surprised we've reached this point. I'm not surprised that Nancy Pelosi is also holding the impeachment right now. That's because the Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, said basically he's not going to take the impeachment trial in the Senate seriously. Lindsey Graham, who is leading the committee, he also said he's not going to take it seriously. He's already read it, made up his mind. He doesn't need to read any evidence. We don't need any witnesses. So I don't blame her for holding on to it until she can trust that they actually are going to take this seriously and listen to the evidence, listen to, I mean, read the evidence and listen to the witnesses. Until then, I think she's right to hold it. And, you know, again, I'm not surprised we've, we've gotten to this point. Um, okay, well, let's move on to the next story. Let's go across the pond. Uh, speaking of Brexit, uh, so recently there was a special election, there was a general election held uh, in England uh, to determine uh, who would have control over Parliament. Uh, high stakes for both parties. 
uh, on both sides. Uh, many members of the Labour Party that hoped uh, to remain in the European Union overturning the Brexit vote uh, from 2016. Uh, there was a lot of high stakes for them. Um, uh, but for uh, conservatives uh, that wanted to get Brexit done, there was a lot of high stakes there. Um, this was after multiple Brexit deals had failed. Um, uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, it was a huge victory for the conservative uh, party uh, as, uh, uh, as conservatives gained a whopping 48 seats in Parliament, uh, making this uh, one of their biggest majorities since the uh, Margaret Thatcher era uh, in Parliament. Um, many, uh, this is considered a big victory for a lot uh, of conservatives. Um, uh, much of the blame, many, many members of the Labour Party uh, have been trying to point to the Labour leader of opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, to try and blame him. Uh, they've said the reason why they lost was because uh, he ran uh, what they view, what they deem, or what they accuse as an overly uh, far-left uh, 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 campaign. Um, they think that a lot of his uh, proposals uh, for free health care uh, and, uh, 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 and for uh, more uh, uh, bringing in, uh, and for amnesty, uh, for, uh, certain, uh, undocumented immigrants, they believe those policies were unpopular, uh, and they believe that the rhetoric from a lot of labor members, uh, that they wanted to remain in the European Union, uh, was also unpopular, uh, and so they are, uh, now, uh, trying to point that blame towards Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn. as a response, uh, Corbyn has said that he will step down, uh, as the leader of the Labour Party. Um, many people uh, in the Labour Party are now hoping for a more moderate leader. Um, others, such as Corbyn himself, are arguing the policies were popular, but that uh, there was just an anti-Brexit uh, wave um, that led to uh, his defeat, and that was the reason why uh, Labour lost so many seats. Um, but, uh, may, here in America, many politicians, many of the moderate Democrats, uh, running have been trying to, uh, sign, uh, have been trying to argue, uh, that a similar outcome could happen, uh, in the presidential election next year if a more, uh, progressive candidate wins the nomination. Uh, uh, former U.S. Vice President, uh, and 2020 Democratic candidate for President Joe Biden, uh, is arguing uh, this, uh, saying in a statement uh, that uh, a Boris Johnson victory was due to uh, what he believes uh, was uh, Mr. Corbyn running an overly far-to-the-left campaign, and that something similar could happen uh, if a more progressive candidate uh, is nominate, wins the Democratic nomination in America. Um, I don't believe he named names, but he there, there was this sense that he was referring to candidates like Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator, and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, also, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg also making the same argument, uh, saying this is a call uh, uh, to nominate a more moderate candidate here in the States. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the uh, victory for conservatives uh, in the UK, and do you believe it could have any implications on the 2020 uh, presidential election, and what do you mean, think it means for Brexit as a whole? Um, 
citizen of the United Kingdom. But um, I, I'm a firm believer when there's an election and the majority wins, they you need to enact what the majority wanted. And Brexit won the majority three years ago. So I'm actually glad that the conservatives and Boris jo- under Boris Johnson were able to win a victory so that they can finally enact Brexit because that is something that that country wants. Both conservatives and uh, Tories, they call themselves Tories over there, and then the labor movement over there, they both supported Brexit. Obviously, people who follow like um, Farage, who's a politician over there, and he's hardcore Brexit. They want, you know, they want more of a hardcore Brexit and the labor movement. I think they kind of waver between hard and soft Brexit. But again, congratulations to them that they won because this, to me, was ridiculous that this has been going on for three years now. It's like, and they still don't have a deal because the Remainers over there refused to accept that they lost an election. They lost the referendum, but they didn't want to accept that. Um, the labor movement, I think this is a wake-up call for them. Like, they need to get their stuff together. They are telling the truth that their policies are popular over there as far as um, support for the NHS, um, support for immigration, and a lot of social causes over there. But, again, a lot of labor um, members support Brexit. And the Labor Party under Jeremy Corbyn, they never took an, um, an actual stance of where they stood. They kept wavering back and forth. Sometimes they were soft Brexit. Sometimes they were like, oh, we're not going to really pick a side. We're just going to kind of follow what Parliament votes on. That's, what? (laughs) You have to pick a side. Like, you can't keep wavering back and forth. I personally believe Jeremy Corbyn, who was the leader of the labor movement, he still is until they find a new um, leader. He should have resigned two years ago. Even though under Theresa May, when she was prime minister, the labor movement, they had an election, and they did win some seats. Um, which was unexpected that they won more seats than what they were expecting. And you know why they won those seats then? It's because Jeremy Corbyn was for soft Brexit. So at least he was supporting Brexit somewhat. This time, I don't know where his position was or where the party's position was. And I think that's why they got their behinds handed to them, basically, because you have to let people know where you stood. Boris Johnson, um, he had a message for the Conservative Party. We are going to enact Brexit. We are going to get out of the EU. We're also going to fund the um, NHS. We're going to get more staffing, um, get more training. We're going to open up more centers. We're going to fund our our education system. We're going to protect our borders. Like, they had a a specific message so people knew exactly what the conservatives stood for or all the Tories. And with the labor movement, again, they they were always going back and forth where they stood on Brexit. So despite the fact that they support NSH and immigration and all that, the most important thing over there was Brexit for um, for Brit. Brexit was the number one issue for, for them. And they wanted to know where people stood. And it's, they have sent a clear message time and time again that they are pro-Brexit. They want out of the EU. So I'm glad that they finally sealed the deal at this point and they're going to be leaving the EU, in, I believe, in January, at the end of January. So... Enough was enough with the labor movement, and it is time for Jeremy Corbyn to go, and it is time to move on with Brexit, like it or not. Um, what do you make of uh, a lot of these claims from people like Vice President Biden or Mayor Bloomberg uh, that they're they're claiming now that the reason uh, the labor movement lost so badly was because uh, Jeremy Corbyn was, in their view, quote, too far to the left and that that's going to have implications on the presidential election if they get a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren candidate. What what are your uh, what 
what do you make of Joe Biden and uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg making that argument? Um, I actually think that's a lazy argument, and I've heard a lot of pundits as well make this argument. I, first of all, don't believe we should compare our politics with another country's politics. Each country goes through different things, and, and they manage things differently. I actually am not buying that, oh, that's a message for us, so we shouldn't like choose a progressive. That doesn't make any sense to me. We have had progressive presidents in the past. We have current progressive um, elected members in the House and in the Senate. I think what's important to Americans is that you have an agenda and you're very clear on your message so that people can understand where candidates stand and know who to vote for. I don't think that the writing is on the wall for progressive here because of what happened over in the UK concerning Boris Johnson and the Tories winning the election. I don't think that has no standing here whatsoever. And I will can point to just look at the polling right now. Like the top tier candidates are Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are known progressive. Um, Sanders is a socialist. So, and they are the top three. And then, of course, Biden's a centrist. I think that's very telling that within the top three tier candidates, two of them lean to the left further to the left than any of the other candidates in the um, primary right now. So I don't think that we should pay attention to what's going on in the UK um, involving our own primary and our own upcoming presidential election. I think we should listen to what Americans are saying they want. And from what I'm hearing personally is what people, they want us to address immigration. They want us to address health care. They want us to address education. They want us to address income equality, and that's what we need to focus on here and not what's going on in another country. Uh, okay, let's move on to the next story. So there was a Democratic debate very recently, uh, and seven Democrats uh, made it onto uh, the debate stage this time, those seven being former U.S. Vice President uh, Joe Biden, um, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, South Bend, Indiana Mayor uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, uh, businessman Andrew Yang, uh, businessman Tom Steyer, and Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard had said before the debate uh, that uh, she would uh, not... Uh, she would she would boycott the debate even if she uh, ended up qualifying. She ended up not qualifying um, and making that round. Uh, uh, some of the key moments uh, include one of the key moments included a fight between uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who accused uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, of taking money from millionaires and billionaires. Uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, s- uh, struck back at that. Uh, arguing he was the only candidate uh, on the stage that uh, was not a millionaire or a billionaire, uh, or the only, um, and that he uh, and that Elizabeth Warren uh, shouldn't quote come up with a purity test that she couldn't pass, uh, in his opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, Andrew, uh, there was some controversy over the debate due to the fact that. Uh, uh, Andrew Yang was the only non-white candidate uh, who made it onto the stage. Um, Cory Booker, uh, senator from New Jersey, uh, did not make it onto the debate stage, but he is still insisting that he that his uh, 
that his campaign still has a path to the presidency regardless. Uh, what were your thoughts on the seventh, de or not the seventh, but the uh, newest Democratic debate? Um, the newest Democratic debate I thought was fine. It was similar to all the other debates that we've had. Um, I'm still waiting for that like big, like shiny moment for a candidate to like really come out where it just kind of takes your breath away where you, you think that person should be our next president of the United States. I'm still not there yet. But as far as um, the spat that kind of was going on between um, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, I thought that was an interesting moment of them two fighting over, um, I actually forgot what they were fighting about because Amy had interrupted. Um, so I thought that was a good moment actually for Amy when she interrupted um, Elizabeth and Pete were kind of bickering back and forth on the issue, and she came in and said, this, I'm not here to listen to you guys bicker, I'm here to talk about campaign finance reform and what's best for Americans um, in our country. No one's interested in all this back and forth, which I do believe is true. Again, Americans, the voters want to hear like what the issues are and how you're going to address them. So I actually think Amy Koshabar had a very good night, and I'm not was not paying any attention to Amy Klobuchar up until that night. I think she had a good night really talking about where she stood, like, again, on campaign finance, on health care. I know she doesn't support Medicare for all. She's more of a single, um, is it single payer or um, I think it's like a buy-in type of option to health care, mm. um, more so than Medi Medicare for all. Um, she kind of wants to expand on Obamacare, so, which is, that's fine. That's her right to support that i support medicare for all but i think she definitely had a shining night and i think she's trying to take the centrist lane because um in my opinion joe biden still is not doing a good job in the debates he's not standing out i know he's still polling far ahead of most of the candidates although bernie sanders is nipping at his heel um but um she definitely had a good night i think pete Buttigieg he had a harder night because a lot of people were attacking him and the reason why people are attacking him is because he's starting to rise in the polls. He's usually, he's been coming in at like the fourth place in most of the polls, um, like the average of polling. Hard night, just like Kamala Harris during the um, second debate, she had a harder night because she had such a good night the first time. And then of course, then she got all this um, publicity and media coverage. So then people came after her because again, everybody wants to be the standout. They're trying to win a presidency, obviously. So I think Amy stood out. I think Pete had a really bad time. He kind of struggled to defend his lack of um, experience as a politician. He's only been a politician for about six years. He is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, but he has tried before to um, win an election in Indiana on a national level, and he has not been able to do that. I believe the last election he ran for... Um, I'm not sure if he ran for governor or something, and he had lost by, like, 20 points. And Amy Klobuchar, she bought that out, and she basically was pointing out that she's the only person on that stage that has won in a deep, deep red state. And I do think she makes a good point by saying, I'm able to win these flyover, flyover states, Midwestern countries. I'm the only one who's won in the deep, deep red state recently as a senator and as a Democrat. So I think she has a good case on that. Again, I don't know what Joe Biden is doing. I think he's struggling to find his footing, which is very shocking to me. But he's still pulling ahead. And I think the reason why he is still pulling ahead right now is because people are trying to be practical because they really want to defeat or the left really wants to defeat Donald Trump. So they're trying to think about the fact that Joe Biden is popular with white male voters. 
and white women and black voters as well. And black voters, I always say, are one of the um, most practical when it comes to voting. They're always thinking about, even if they really like a candidate, can that candidate win? <laughs> like, mm. we want to win the election. Like, it's great. Like, I love this candidate, um, purity test, whatever. But I want to win <laughs> at the same time. I think that's why they're holding strong to Joe Biden because they still believe he could beat Donald Trump. I don't actually believe that. I think he's just been performing terribly. And I was actually listening to an interview recently with someone that was saying how they knew Donald Trump was going to win the election in 2016 is because of the banks. Like, the voters were eager. They were always constantly talking about Donald Trump. Whether they liked him or not, he was always in the conversation. And she was saying that's something we should look towards more than the polling you look to the excitement from the voters. So that's why I don't think Joe Biden ultimately is going to win the nomination. Andrew Yang, he had a very good night as well. I think he finally got his message through for the universal basic income um, and some other issues as far as campaign finance reform and immigration. It was kind of sad to see no people of color besides him on the stage. But again, I'm kind of not, I don't think we should focus on that too much. Like, it's nice to have a diversity on the stage, but I don't think it should be like a mandate. People should be on the stage because voters want to see them and because they qualify. I don't think we should really get caught up on political identity. But, I mean, it was a, it's a shame not to see um, Corey Cooper there anymore and Julian Castro, because I think they do have a good, strong message as centrist candidates. But it is what it is. I think the debate overall was, it was okay. I didn't really learned nothing new about where the candidates stood, but I do think Amy stood out the most, and then I would say Andrew probably came in second. I don't know why Ty Sire is in the debate anymore, besides the fact that he has a ton of money. Um, I'm having a hard time seeing where he stands other than he just wants to get Donald Trump um, unelected So, in the next election, so we'll see. Okay, well, let's move on to the next uh, story. So Joe Biden... Uh, getting a bit of backlash uh, for, uh, or or he received backlash uh, and praise from some people in his base uh, for uh, something uh, he said to the Des Moines Register recently about testifying in front of the U.S. Senate. Of course, there are rumors right now uh, that if, uh, that in the U.S. Senate trial, Joe Biden and his son will be subpoenaed, um, and Joe Biden argued that he uh, implied that he would not comply with a subpoena uh, as uh, he would, um, he argued that he would not comply with the subpoena because uh, he believed that uh, that would create a medium narrative and that would help Trump win and that would divert attention. Um, and here's what he said. He said, what are you, go quote, what are you going to cover? Uh, quote, you guys are going to cover for three weeks anything that I said, and Trump's going to get away with it. You guys buy into it all the time. Not a joke. Uh, think about, uh, think what it's about. It's about what he does all the time, his entire career. Take the focus off. This guy violated the Constitution. He said it in the driveway of the White House. He acknowledged uh, he asked for help. Uh, many people attacked Biden, uh, arguing that he was... Uh, saying he wouldn't comply with a subpoena from the Senate. Uh, Joe Biden um, saying that's not what it was, uh, saying in a tweet on Twitter, quote, I want to clarify something I said yesterday. In my 40 years uh, in public life, 
I have always complied with a lawful order, uh, and in my eight years as AP as VP, my office, unlike Donald Trump uh, and Mike Pence, uh, cooperated with legitimate congressional oversight uh, requests. Uh, so, um, but he goes on to say, but I am not going to pretend like there is any legal basis for Republican subpoenas for my testimony in the impeachment trial. That's the point I was trying to make yesterday, uh, and reiterate this, uh, impeachment is about Trump's conduct, not mine. Um, uh, he later, uh, said in an Iowa town hall, he, uh, quote, uh, that he would quote, would obey any subpoena sent to me. Uh, and he went on to say, quote, the question is, did Trump do his job? Uh, so you see there, uh, he's kind of saying, um, that he would, uh, indeed, uh, supply with, uh, 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 comply with the subpoena, uh, if he is subpoenaed by the United States Senate. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? on both sides because I, again I said if there is some type of corruption going on with Joe Biden's family particularly his son and we, we should look into it but at the same time I think we also should look into Trump's family and his children that have been getting all these deals and making all this money while their father has been in the White House Ivanka won all these trade deals um, or pay, patents with um, China that's something I think we should be looking into I think overall we need to look into nepotism um, and really addressed it. I know I thought it was supposed to be illegal, but <laughs> it seems like we just don't care anymore. But as far as um, I think Trump is using Biden as a distraction because he wants to distract from him being impeached in the House. He wants to distract from anyone bringing any type of sunlight to any of the corruption that's going on in his administration. So he's like, let me shine a light on Joe Biden, who also happens to be his opponent in this election so or he possibly will be, be a, an opponent in the election so he wants to focus on him and i think we should focus on both of them <laughs> let's focus on corruption as a whole but joe biden definitely should comply to the subpoena if he is to be subpoenaed by the senate but at the same time i feel like all this is like just a mockery and just like a mess like what is going on like why can't anyone focus on anything? And I'm tired of point, fingers pointing back and forth. No, you're guilty of this. No, you're guilty of that. Well, let's just look into both of you guys. How about that? But I do think Trump and the Senate, which is run by the Republicans, they're just using Biden as a distraction. I don't think they really care about what his son was up to back when Joe Biden was um, vice president. I don't think, I'm not buying the whole storyline that Trump is concerned about corruption in the Ukraine and trying to end corruption when, again, your children have been up to no good as well, you know, getting patents. And I think um, the Kushner's made $200 million since they've been on the White House. What what happened to the Immokalous cause? Like, so I think it's just a big distraction. I don't really think Americans are too concerned about it, honestly, because I think that we as Americans have bigger problems as far as income inequality, trying to pay our bills, trying to get better health care. So, but this is the game that Trump plays. He's always played these games. So just go back to the time with the whole birther movement. So he's always pointing his finger at somebody else so that you're not paying attention to him. But again, as a whole, if there's corruption going on, we should just look into it, period. But we should look into it in a bipartisan manner and address it. So that's my thought on that. So. 
All right. Well, let's move on to the next uh, story. Uh, so uh, could Bernie Sanders actually upset the crowd and win the Democratic nomination uh, for uh, president? Well, some Democratic insiders uh, are saying that could very well be the case. Uh, Politico uh, recently talked with a number of key uh, Democratic Party insiders uh, who are now uh, claiming that they are taking Bernie Sanders's candidacy, quote, very seriously. Uh, David Brooke, uh, who was a longtime Clinton ally, said, quote, it may have been uh, a new, uh, it may have been uh, inevitable that eventually you would have two candidates representing each other, uh, representing each side of the ideological divide of the party. A lot of smart people I've talked to think uh, there's a very good chance uh, those uh, two en could end up being Biden and Sanders. They've both proven to be very resilient. David Pfeiffer, uh, who was a former uh, uh, advisor to uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama, says, quote, people should take Sanders very seriously. Uh, he's got a very good shot at winning Iowa, a very good shot at winning New Hampshire, um, and other than Joe Biden, the best shot at winning Nevada. Um, uh, so yeah, right now you're saying, you're seeing a lot of this, uh, a lot of people saying that um, he could do that. Um, and uh, even uh, Michael uh, Cesario, who was a former campaign advisor for Pete Buttigieg, uh, says, quote, a quarter of the electorate will uh, uh, go for him. Um, uh, so uh, what are your thoughts on all these Democratic insiders saying that uh, Bernie Sanders could be the Democratic nominee for president? Well, for the Democratic insiders, I say welcome aboard. I think the base has long known that Bernie Sanders has a chance of winning the nomination. If you go back to the 2016 election when he was running against Hillary Clinton, he won a lot of those states that we need we needed to win in the general election that we didn't win, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Um, Bernie Sanders actually won those in the primary, and I believe he has a good shot of winning those again. And some of the polls I have been reading, he's been coming in, I think in most cases, first place in those areas. So I do think he has a... He has a shot, and I think this is why the media is finally taking him seriously. I also think the media is taking him seriously because the Democratic base, particular progressives, have been really on the media for being, um, for basically trying to ignore Bernie Sanders. For months on end, they tried to act like there was, he had no chance, especially when he had um, the heart surgery. They were like, oh, his candidacy is over with. Um, but I've always believed that Bernie Sanders could win the election. I actually thought he would win it against Hillary Clinton, but as some of the people know, the whole shenanigans that were going on with the DNC that I think impaired his chance at winning because they would prefer Hillary and were providing more support to her than Bernie Sanders um, when they were actually supposed to be impartial during the primary. Um, but I'm glad to see that the mainstream media and um, strategists are now on board that, oh, yeah, actually Bernie Sanders does have a shot. Um, I actually noticed recently CNN had showed their po their latest polling, and they completely left Bernie Sanders out the polling. They had, like, Joe Biden in first place, Elizabeth Warren in second, and then Pete Buttigieg in fourth. And everybody was like, well, who's second? And we all knew it was Bernie Sanders, but they just didn't want to talk about it because um, 
um, the mainstream media is they are scared about having a progressive candidate, especially a progressive candidate that says he's a socialist. So, and as you know, United States of America, we have, you know, a dark, we don't have a good rep- or opinion about socialism in this country. Uh, and for good reasons. There's there's reasons why people are, have a negative opinion about it. I don't think Bernie Sanders is that kind of socialist. I think he's more for, like, social, you know, welfare, helping people out, being more compassionate in policy. I don't think he's more on the side of being, like, a dictator type of socialist. Um, so I think he has a chance. I think he's going to be the – he's going to shock a lot of people when he starts, again, winning all these primaries in Ohio, Michigan – Pennsylvania, New, ha- New Hampshire, um, and I do think he'll probably end up being our nominee. Um, if not, it might it could possibly be Elizabeth Warren. Again, I don't think Joe Biden has a shot at all. He's not doing a good job. When I talk to people on the ground, they are not impressed with him at all. The media is impressed with him, but the media is always impressed with um, politicians of a certain stature because they want to get interviews, they want to get inside scoop. So... And the media's always just kind of been, I think, they've never been in the loop to where America is. I feel like they're always completely off base because they're just kind of in their D.C. bubble and New York bubble. So they don't really, they're not really listening to the people. Hence why Trump won. Then they didn't expect Donald Trump to win. I thought Donald Trump was going to possibly win the presidency. And he did because, again, I was talking to people on the ground about their feelings and who they were leaning towards and a lot of people then were telling me that they liked Donald Trump so I wasn't surprised that he ended up winning and the same thing here I'm not going to be I won't be surprised if Bernie Sanders wins the nomination so I think it's time for them to just get ready that we possibly are going to have a democratic socialist candidate for president uh all right well let's uh move on so uh Gavin Newsom uh getting into uh, the democratic governor of California getting into a bit of a fight with President Trump. Uh, a new video came out that went viral uh, of uh, Gavin Newsom uh, trying to say the reason for California's homeless crisis uh, was uh, thanks in part uh, to uh, an action from the Trump administration. He says in a video that the White House uh, was uh, not serious uh, and, quote, playing politics uh, with his, quote, housing first policy, um, and, uh, Trump, uh, fired back at him. Trump responded to a tweet from Fox host Tommy Laren that said, quote, take accountability, Gavin. This is from Tommy Laren. This is your state, uh, and your democratic cohorts created this mess. You can't blame Donald Trump forever. Step away from your hair gel and get to work. Uh, and Donald Trump, uh, responded to that tweet. Uh, attacking uh, Gavin Newsom, saying, Governor Gavin N., referring to Governor Newsom, has done a really bad job of taking care of the homeless population in California. If he can't fix the problem, the federal government will get uh, involved. Uh, What are your thoughts uh, on this fight between uh, Governor Newsom and President Trump? Um, I think the fight is childish because I think homelessness in our country is a significant problem and it's something we should take seriously. I don't see homelessness as either a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. I see it as an American issue that we need to address. And I don't particularly like seeing our politicians bicker back and forth when I think this is something we should be united to try to solve. Homelessness is a rampant um, problem in all 50 states. 
California, Oregon, New York, Mississippi, um, Michigan, Detroit. I mean, homelessness is everywhere, and it's something we need to address. And that starting with one, we need to address the housing crisis in our country. Our housing bubble is it's, it's expensive. It's expensive to rent. It's expensive to get a mortgage. Um, we need to address income inequality. The, the pay gap is ridiculous just between middle class and millionaires. And then not to think if you break it down by sex and you break it down by race. Um, it's a phenomenal problem that we need to take seriously. And I just kind of wish both um, Gavin Newsom and Trump would cool, cool their heads down and be adults <laughs> and to say, let's work together to solve this problem instead of bickering again. And that, like I said, this whole pointing fingers back and forth, you're guilty of this, no, you're guilty of that. Americans are tired of that. And I think this is why a lot of Americans have can just completely tuned out of politics and don't even engage in politics and in voting because they're just like, you're just, you're just both arguing and we need to start solving problems. I'm really big on let's unite and try to fix the problems that we have, again, instead of just arguing back and forth about it, that's not solving anything. That's address the issue. First of all, admit the issue, and then that's work to address it. Um, because, again, homelessness is a very, it's a serious problem, especially amongst our vets. Um, I'm also tired of Trump always trying to threaten to use big government to go after a state because he doesn't like a certain politician. To me, that's borderline of kind of acting like a dictatorship, and I wish he kind of would stop that. I don't think Donald Trump is a dictator, obviously, but I think sometimes he try to kind of shows that that side of him, and I don't, I don't like seeing that. So I think that both of them need to cool down. I actually um, surprisingly don't mind the tweet that Tommy Loren sent out, although I'm not a fan of hers at all. Um, but she kind of had a point there. It's Donald Trump is not responsible for he didn't create homelessness, but neither did Galvin Newsom. Our system, our policies created homelessness again through income inequality, the housing crisis. Um, and Silicon, like with Silicon Valley, they have made it so expensive for people to live in um, areas in San Francisco. The rent is just it's phenomenal, it's like it's about two thousand dollars just for a one bedroom apartment. But the average person is not make, is only making $60,000, and that's actually a pretty good salary, but if your rent is $2,000, you're, you're struggling. Like, you're basically living paycheck by paycheck. So, again, I wish that both of them would just stop bickering and take homelessness seriously. I would like to actually see them unite and solve the problem. All right. Well, let's move on. So, controversial radio show host uh, Don Imus has died uh, at age 79, uh, Imus uh, was known for his ongoing rivalry uh, with, uh, uh, with, uh, radio show host, uh, um, with radio show host Howard Stern. Uh, like Stern, Imus was known to shock audiences with politically uh, incorrect statements. Um, uh, he... Uh, uh, he uh, had a show called Imus in the Morning, uh, which ran uh, uh, on CBS for many, many years. Uh, he was known for his politically incorrect statements. Uh, he, uh, he did get in trouble, however, uh, after uh, uh, in 2005, after he uh, made a comment uh, using a racial slur. 
uh, about a, uh, a black uh, basketball uh, team. Uh, that led to CBS pulling his show from the air, although he did eventually land a deal uh, to do another show. Uh, Imus retired uh, from his show officially in 2018 uh, and died uh, this Friday at the age of 79. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on Don Imus's death? I do send my condolences to his family on his death. Um, obviously, losing a loved one is always a terrible thing to have to go through. Um, at the same time, I'm not a fan of his because he has, like you said, said a lot of racial things towards people. He not only said anti-Semitic things to Howard Stern or about Howard Stern, he also called um, Howard Stern's co-host Robin the N-word. He called a group of um, basketball players, black women, that are black players for um, Rutgers University, he called them nappy-headed toes, which is, you know, insulting. I mean, he he has said a lot of terrible things about people. Um, I've read up on it, and apparently he's called a lot of black people to their faces the N-word. <laughs> so um, I don't know what to say about that. That's very disheartening to me. And it's one of those things, again, like where I wish white America could understand how hurtful it is to people of color when we see them like offering all these oh, sympathies, not the sympathies part, but saying, oh, he's a good, he was a good person. He did a lot of things for children with cancer, which is great. But he also had this other side to him where he said a lot of disparaging things about people of color that they, you know, that scarred them basically for life. You have to carry, I mean, I'm a person of color and I deal with it on a daily basis you know, dealing with people who say negative things about me just because of the color of my skin. But um, Sean Hannity actually tweeted about Don, and he said, I'm heartbroken. I knew the real Don Imus. Imus adored his wife and son and his adopted son and had a heart of gold. The work he did for children with cancer will live on forever. Every email he ever sent me made me laugh. Always smart, witty, irrelevant. Um... And Godspeed, Don Imus, as you move to the great rodeo in the sky. And obviously, I'm not going to chastise Sean Hannity for sending that out about a friend. But again, at the same time, as a person of color, you're saying, yeah, okay, he did those good things. But again, he also was not a nice person to people of color. He, to my knowledge, did not apologize for these things that he said. So it's always hard when a, a person with such a, I would say, a colorful reputation passes away because you don't want to be disrespectful to the family but at the same time you don't want to lie about who that person was so I guess I'm kind of between a rock and a hard place my condolences go to the family but I'm personally I don't have good thoughts about him so that's all I can say on that uh all right well let's move on to the next story uh so Donald Trump is uh coming under fire uh, for uh, retweeting uh, a uh, tweet uh, from a Twitter user named SurferMom77, uh, which uh, uh, put the name uh, of the alleged whistleblower, uh, according to SurferMom77, Eric Carmelia, uh, a former Obama uh, campaign uh, advisor, uh, or a former a national security advisor on Obama's campaign, was the name of the whistleblower. Um, this is citing a Washington Examiner uh, article uh, that uh, said that Carmelia was the whistleblower 
um, and uh, and also a Breitbart article that re that uh, allegedly broke the story. Uh, many people uh, are arguing that this is illegal to do. Uh, other people are saying that it's uh, not because he just retweeted an article um, uh, and he didn't post it. Uh, other people are arguing that there could be legal consequences. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I do think it's illegal what he did. I think it's irresponsible. Again, I wish Trump would remember that he is the president of the United States and you just can't just do whatever you want. There's, there's protocol. There are norms. I believe in protecting whistleblowers because you can put their life in danger. It has happened in the past when we reveal whistleblowers' names without their permission, ultimately, and we have put people's lives in, in danger. So I think what he did was wrong. I actually think that's something that the House should probably investigate as well because just because he's upset about being impeached and the whole investigation process doesn't make it okay for him to reveal classified information. Again, we have rules in place that we protect whistleblowers because we want people that work for the government to be able to feel safe, to go to the proper channels, to report incidents of corruption or things that are concerning to them. They should be able to do that without fearing for their lives because if we get to the point where our public um, servants don't feel safe, then we're never going to be able to bring sunlight to some of the corruption and the um, misdeeds that might be happening within our government, who we pay their salaries, by the way, and we have every right to know what's going on in the inside. So I think Trump owes an apology, first of all, to the whistleblower and to the country as whole from just once again taking his personal feelings and, and just blowing up, <laughs> like just completely blowing up on his Twitter. He needs to learn, again, to, to cool down and to second-guess things before he actually does things. Like, actually think about it and think about the repercussions of what you're doing before you actually do it. So, but he doesn't tend to do that, and that's a big problem. And I hope that um, the whistleblower is safe um, and that Trump doesn't do this again. So we'll see. But I think he needs to be talked to I by channel debbie that he can't keep doing stuff like this so that is my thought as well as i mean the media they report on things when they get information so i'm not going to necessarily blame them although i think they should still be responsible and think about the repercussions of what you're reporting you could have just reported on the facts of the case leaving the person's name out but again we live in this hyper-partisan society right now where we're always pointing fingers everywhere so we don't real, people aren't really thinking about the, the the effects of what we're reporting and how we're reporting things. So it's disappointing, but it's too late. He's already he's already put this person's name out there. So. Uh, all, all right. Uh, well, thank you again for joining us. That's about all the articles or all the stories we have for this week. Uh, before we go, are there any other, uh, or do you want to tell people where you can be found, uh, social media wise and where they can listen to your podcast? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me onto your show. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, my social media, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. It's at the Kiana Fulton. My first name is spelled Q-U-I-A-N-A. And my podcast is called You, Me, and Polly. You can find it everywhere, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, 
Um, you can just even just Google my name, Tiana Fulton, and all my information will come up. All right. Thank you again uh, for joining us. Thank you, and have a nice New Year's. You too. Happy New Year.